Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Our guest today is Damien Mander, an anti-poaching activist and founder of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, IAPF, a direct action law enforcement organization bringing military solutions to conservation. As a former Australian Royal Navy clearance diver and special operations military sniper, Mander advocated the use of military equipment and tactics for the purpose of protecting animals from poaching. After learning about poaching in Southern Africa and the criminal networks that used military equipment to poach for profit, Mander was convinced that his specialized military skills, personal finances, and experience could contribute significantly to wildlife protection and conservation. Using his life savings, Mander founded the IAPF in 2009 and founded the Akashinga, or the Brave Ones, an all-female anti-poaching unit. We will be speaking with Damien about his work at IAPF and how the Akashinga program offers an alternative approach to the militarized paradigm of fortress conservation, which defends colonial boundaries between nature and humans. Damien believes that empowering women can be the single biggest force for positive change in the world today. Okay, so you left Iraq in 2008 and traveled to Africa. You've talked about a pivotal moment that propelled you into conservation. It was an encounter with a buffalo. Can you share your experience? Yeah, I mean, so for uh, just to give that context of why this meant something, uh, you know, I, I didn't grow up having any real affiliation or respect for nature or animals. Uh, I was a hunter, the worst kind of hunter, the one that did it for fun and not even for food. Um, and when I look back now, and I suppose this is the beauty of hindsight, being able to look back with the lessons learned over the, the path travelled, it's when I was at my most desperate in life to be someone, to be heard, to be tough, to be respected. And I chose, rather than to earn that respect, to try and take it. And that was demonstrated through uh, exploiting something that was unable to defend itself against me. And um, so by the time I got to Africa with a dozen tours of Iraq behind me, you know, you get to see the world through a different lens by that stage. And I don't know what it was and how Iraq changed me specifically. I can't pinpoint it. But seeing the injustice that was happening to animals affected me in a different way, in a way that I hadn't been affected before. And it was quite shocking to realise that I did actually have feelings uh, tucked away in there somewhere. We saw there was a there was a buffalo, and, and a buffalo is is a big, majestic, powerful animal, and one of the most dangerous animals on the savanna in Africa. And this uh, poachers who are poaching on a commercial basis will lay hundreds of these wire snares out, and these wire snares become traps for animals, uh, and the animals get their legs or their torso or their head caught in these wire snares, and do whatever they can to try and rip themselves out of there. They don't understand why they've been trapped. They don't have hands and fingers to be able to undo these traps. All they know is to try and pull with as much strength as possible and break whatever it is that's holding them. 
Now, the rangers who we work with, who live in the bush and, and who I've come to respect and be inspired by more than any other group of people I've, I've, I've worked with uh, or been involved with in, in my short time here uh, on Earth, they can read the ground like you or I read the newspaper and they can tell, like another language, exactly how long an animal has been struggling. And when they looked at the ground on this particular day, they said this buffalo had been here for, for three days struggling. And she's so powerful, uh, this, this animal, that she was able to rip her own pelvis in half, trying to free her back leg. And we could hear the bones crunching underneath the skin. And uh, there was nothing we could do for her. Uh, the best thing we could do for her was to, was to put her out of her misery. And we, we put a gun to her head and we pulled the trigger. And at that point, she gave birth. And... Uh, I don't care who you are, where you come from, how tough you think you are. You can't look at something like that and not be changed permanently and forever. Was that at the beginning of your tour of Africa after you left Iraq? Or was that uh, when you had already decided that you were going to pursue this as your next stage in life? That was a definitely uh, you know, a key defining moment. It was after I'd been in Africa for, for some months. Uh, I didn't go straight from Iraq to Africa. I went to South America and uh, faced down in a lot of drugs and alcohol, trying to come to terms with the what next in life. And, uh, you know, this is in no way trying to steal the uh, the victimisation from the Iraqi people and what they face. But for a lot of guys that, that go over there and experience that in terms of being a soldier, and you know, when, when it all finishes, you lose purpose. Uh, whatever whatever the job was over there, at least you had purpose. You're part of a unit. You're part of a tight-knit team. And when that stops, it's hard to reintegrate back into society. So, yeah, I mean, I I was one of the lucky ones. When I hit rock bottom, I bounced off, off the ground. Many people don't, and uh, that's the last you hear of them. But uh, I'd heard about anti-poaching um, sometime earlier, about 10 years earlier in a bar, you know, bar room chat, and it uh, sounded like a cool adventure. So I came over not expecting to be... Still where I am today, uh, it was, it was literally, it was literally about serving my own interests, uh, and doing something for, you know, as a six month jolly, basically. So how did you go from that moment with the buffalo to deciding that you wanted to work in anti-poaching and founding IAPF? Well, at about that time, I was wanting to become a chef and I've always loved cooking and, and, and eating, um, I had all the enrollment forms to go and study uh, three years to be a chef. Um, pretty close to seeing the uh, the buffalo. We, I, I came across an elephant with its face cut off. Unfortunately, these are regular circumstances in the areas we, we, we have worked. And that was it. You know, So having, having been in, in Iraq uh, and having a property portfolio, you know, there's always the, the looming presence that you won't come home to be able to do anything with that portfolio. So we had a power of attorney. That happened to be my mum. And I was able to contact her and, and uh, get her to liquidate a, a property portfolio back in Australia. Uh, so I bought my first house I think, just before the age of 21. Uh, by the time I was 29, I had uh, five houses in Australia, uh, two apartments in Dubai. And so I was able to start selling these off and use all the money that I'd made and saved in my time in the military, years in Iraq, essentially to do something constructive. And how did your mom feel? Was she supportive? Was she surprised? No, she, I, mean, 
my poor mum, I don't think, I don't think she can be surprised anymore. Well, she, I mean, they didn't, my parents didn't know I was in Iraq for the first two and a half years I was there. Uh, I told them I was doing some uh, advisory work in Dubai, in the UAE, and then a couple of mates got killed. So, uh, yeah, they, yeah, that was in the papers back home and they sort of pieced two and two together. Um, I don't think much surprises mum anymore, to be honest. At the time, were you in a relationship? Were you married at the time? No, 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 no. Okay, so it was just your family that you were basically, and friends that you were getting responses from in terms of your decision to make this huge sacrifice and, as you said, liquidate five homes, two apartments. Uh, And then the IAPF is located in London, the headquarters? Uh, No, no, we, um, we headquartered in Zimbabwe. Uh, we operate in South Africa, Mozambique, and Kenya, and uh, we have um, we registered in the United States as a five hundred one c three charitable organisation, and also Australia. So the US and Australia raises funds, and uh, the other side of the pond uh, we spend it. So how are the funds being used? So we, uh, as an organisation, who who have gone through our own continuous learning evolution, uh, we started off training rangers and going out there and defending animals that were being targeted by people using paramilitary tactics. There were elephants and rhinos uh, to feed uh, into organised crime networks is another currency uh, for them. Uh, for us, the, the most direct way to protect these animals is to have a good person uh, out there willing to risk their life standing between the animal and the person that's coming to kill it. A decade later, uh, after supporting and training rangers that helped protect over six million acres of wilderness, the likes of Dr Jane Goodall as head of our advisory board and our patron, uh, we've we've evolved. Uh, we now specialise and you know, focus on land and leadership. Uh, land being long-term acquisition of of land in key ecosystems in partnership with the local community, uh, and leadership uh, identifying leaders in existing conservation networks in Africa and and building up indigenous capacity uh, in their workplace and and empowering them to go back and educate their own subordinates. What was the response like? to IAPF when you first founded it by the local communities? Did they feel that it was intrusive or helpful or somewhere in between? Well, I mean, so there's a couple of different communities there we can talk, talk uh, or we can reference. Uh, one being the conservation community. Uh, very much wasn't a case of everyone coming together and saying, thank you for coming to save Africa, Damien. Uh, and uh, from the community side, you know, we, we were falling into step with what a lot of other people in conservation were doing and still are doing and where conservation is increasingly heading, and that is uh, in a militarised direction. And uh, whether it's drones or uh, algorithms, uh, fancy optic systems or fibre optic cables under the ground, uh, camera systems that are set up, uh, we're getting more electronic, we're getting more tech-driven, and we're getting more geared up for war. And that's, you know, we, we were an organisation that beat the drum possibly the loudest uh, over the past decade in, in terms of heading in that direction. And, um, you know, we did some big programs and we had some successful programs. I would say temporary success. Uh, one program in particular, we, we secured the eastern boundary of Kruger National Park's intensive protection zone in an area called the Greater Lobombo Conservancy now, this piece of land separates a third of the world's rhino and the majority of the world's rhino poaching syndicates. Uh, and the, the population that we were going in to protect 
was responsible for the death of 70% of rhinos that were killed each year around the world. So it stood to reason that if we could help turn off the tap or the flow of Mozambique nationals coming into this population of, of rhino, if we could stop that, we could take uh, rhino poaching off the global stage and it'd be a success in an industry that is, you know, we're always looking for good stories, you know. Mm-hmm. You know what is it? What are, what are troubled times? And uh, we did that. We went in there on the 8th of June in 2015 and we built up a force that ended up consisting of 165 personnel, four different government departments, helicopters, aeroplanes, canine tracking units, uh, bigger fences and more guns. And we were at war with the local population and we were winning. Uh, And we stopped poachers from coming through that fence uh, from 2010 through to 2014, there was an on average increase in rhino deaths each year in Kruger National Park of around 55% a year. It was in- increasing, increasing, increasing. 2015, we had six months on the, on, the, on the border there, and there was a 0.1% increase in Kruger National Park. Uh, the following year, we had 12 months at it uh, there, and there was an 18% decrease in uh, rhino poaching and in 2016 for the first time in almost a decade there was a global downturn in, in rhino poaching uh we got a lot of a lot of good accolades for that we got a lot of pats on the back and people were saying you know this is this is great um but it wasn't sustainable and i knew we, what we were doing was not right and i used to give lectures around the world saying that what we are uh, are doing here operationally is not the answer we're simply holding on uh, to what we have left so someone can come along with a better idea. Uh, like a paramedic essentially trying to get this thing to the operating table and um, the, the age-old cliche of winning the hearts and minds had never been further away from what we we're actually achieving on the ground. And yet those numbers are very impressive. Can you talk about what the initial obstacles were that you faced and even setting up the infrastructure to coordinate such a large set of activities? Well, the, the first thing is to go in and build an intelligence network of what's going in on the ground and, and figure out what the threats are, uh, figure out what resources we have uh, to go in and then simply just centralise command, uh, communications, intelligence uh, and resources and allocate the resources directly to the threat. Uh, Did you have to get government support in each of the... Yeah, most definitely. Local communities and obviously national government support? Definitely. And uh, the thing is, Mozambique was coming under a lot of international scrutiny for um, the amount of poachers that were coming across uh, from Mozambique, where rhinos themselves had been declared extinct uh, a few years earlier. Uh, Mozambique sharing a, a, a 200-mile border with another country, uh, being South Africa, and along, along that, well, in those 200 miles of of uh, area that I'm referring to was Kruger National Park, which is home to a third of the world's rhino. So, you know, a rhino wandering across the border from South Africa into Mozambique had a life expectancy of 12 to 24 hours. So um, they were getting a lot of scrutiny and they were looking for solutions. Uh, we weren't a silver bullet. We were uh, a way of Mozambique being able to demonstrate uh, an effort. And there's something more valuable in Africa than, than money, and that's mandate. When you get uh, the support from the government, uh, you know, you have the luxury of being able to go uh, offshore and and find the funds to to make a program happen. But if you don't have a mandate, you've got nothing. You referenced that experience as 
um, basically being a Band-Aid, kind of like a paramedic coming in. Is that how the Akashinga came about, that model? Yeah. You were trying to come up with something sustainable. It was a bunch of intertwining threads that, uh, that, that came together at, I suppose, the right point in time. I suppose you've got to take it, take it back to 2007. Uh, we're in northern Baghdad and uh, we're on a, on a mission there and uh, our convoy got blown up uh, coming through a checkpoint and a couple of people killed and, um, and we were surrounded um, by um, you know, various militia uh, elements, Māori Army, and, uh, you know, I was in the third third out of four vehicles. It was the rear vehicle that got blown up, and uh, a vehicle pulled up next to me, and it had a Dushka anti-aircraft gun mounted in the back, and I had that gun at my head. And uh, our team leader in the vehicle, the first vehicle that hit the... We got panic buttons in each, each car, and uh, had hit the panic buttons... Now, when you hit the panic buttons, it goes back to the rock, the reconstruction operations centre, and they try and scramble resources. It's, it's the when you're in deep shit button. Uh, and um, within two minutes, there was a couple of Apache gunships uh, that were, were there circling our position. And then the US Army Rangers came in and got us out, uh, took us back to their base. And, you know, it's like, thanks, guys. Um, all men in that unit. And then um, a decade later, I'm reading in the New York Times about the US Army Rangers putting women through a ranger training, Army Ranger training, and deploying them on the front lines. So I'm sort of thinking, you know, if there's the unit that was good enough to save my life uh, a decade ago is now transitioning to put women through, you know, there's a connection there. And I thought, well, if women can be Army Rangers, maybe they can be wildlife rangers as, as well. And... Uh, this is at a time where we're reading you know, an overwhelming body of evidence about in, in, the empowerment of women and, and how much benefit that can bring to organisations and industry. Uh, now, I, I, I come from the Ultimate Boys Club. I come from special operations. Uh, and we had studies done when I was back in the Navy with the, as a diver. Um, we had studies done on us by the University of Wollongong uh, in an effort to try and transition women into our ranks. And we, we chose... And the boys club got together and we said we want to make our entrance standards harder rather than to allow women into our ranks. And, uh, you know, it's very hard to see through ego when you're a, you're a young guy in your 20s. But looking back now, uh, you know, we, we couldn't see any further than, than the hand in front of our face because it was just ego. And uh, that's, that's essentially where we're at. And I've built a career across three continents by bringing pretty hardened men to the point of breaking and then rebuilding them into what we need on the front lines and women never featured in the equation. And to be honest, I never considered it. And uh, I think the final catalyst was being at a, at a fundraiser here in New York uh, and they were raising money for some women that were working in conservation and, uh, but they were limited in their roles and what they were allowed to do. Uh, but it was, it was the perception was very clear that they were doing everything. In actual fact... You know, and this particular reserve, I know it, the, the tough, hard, armed work was being done by an all-male unit. And so it undermined the men because they're doing the tough work and not getting the credit, credit yeah. for it. It undermines the women because they weren't given the opportunity to do everything, whether they could or they couldn't. We would never know because nobody gave them a shot. And uh, there's a lot of what I've come to learn as, as tokenism uh, in conservation, which is an industry that's dominated by men 
uh, in particular on the front lines where men outnumber women by up to 100 to 1. You know, women, women are counted as being out there, but they're on gate positions. They're in guard boxes. They're restricted. They're administrative positions. Um, people will still stick a weapon in their hand and take a photo for fundraising, but they're actually not out there uh, in so many circumstances doing the, doing the, I'll say, the, you know, every job. And so for me, you know, it was just a matter of, you know, we're looking at other industries if they're progressing and we're spending billions of dollars as an industry and still talking about animals going extinct. Maybe there's a different way of looking at things. And, uh, you know, we, saw, we tried, tried in a bunch of places, uh, sitting with stakeholders and various leaders. So we want to trial an all-female anti-poaching unit here and people, people laughed at us. Yeah. We offered to fund every single facet of the operation and de- demobilise it if it didn't work. Nobody would be willing to take that. And, you know, this is a, it's not a cheap project. Uh, it's not like, you know, just throwing a couple of bucks away and seeing how it goes. It was like, you know, we're all in with a very good track record of making shit work. And uh, even on one reserve where we worked in Victoria Falls, the Stanley Livingston Private Game Reserve, we'd worked there for eight years and not lost a single animal in eight years. And we just wanted to integrate uh, one team of women there, four women, and they wouldn't have it. So the people that are part of your training team, are they all locals or do you have um, international trainers as well who have perhaps a more open mind towards initially integrating women? Uh, so we, we have a very big focus on building indigenous local capacity, but you need core skill, you know, core um, base of, of instructors to do that from. Um, we run a program in Kenya called Lead Ranger, uh, which is specifically focused on building up uh, these networks um, of of local leaders, uh, but we do use um, you know some foreign instructors. It's getting less and less now, and I think uh, well, there's only one other foreign instructor that's uh, full time with the organisation at the moment, uh, Boris Voss up in uh, Kenya, who's who's running that Lead Ranger program uh, with his partner Dominic Noom. So your original selection criteria for the Akashinga included targeting exclusively unemployed single mothers, abandoned wives, sex workers, victims of sexual and physical abuse, and wives of poachers in prison, widows and orphans. Why did you choose these women and what impact has that selection criteria had in your model success? So, I mean, when we sat down with the chief and we, you know, to eventually where this program was going to get a start, they gave us three days to trial, you know, only three days. There was nothing long-term. And we just, it was three days basically to demonstrate that this wasn't going to work and, uh, you know, we were wasting everyone's time. Now, when we spoke to the chief and the councillor and said, you know, we, if this does work, we may be giving a job at the end of it, long-term jobs. And I can tell you now for no other reason... There was no structure behind it or anything. There was, there's no other reason than the fact that Aussies always sort of want to fight for the underdog and bat for the underdog. And uh, we said, well, if we're going to give a job, let's give it to the ones that need it the most. And that's when we came up with those criteria. And to be honest, looking back on um, all the selection and, and programs that I've run, I don't want, we don't want fucking great CVs. We don't want uh, people that know everything already and have all the qualifications. I want a scrapper. I want someone that knows what it's like to have to fight to survive and has been there and done it. And, uh, you know, we we want character, we want spirit. We can train the rest. Uh, And that's exactly what we got with these women, is character and spirit. You've stated that the Akashinga model 
supports community-driven conservation. Can you describe what you mean by that? So from everything we've read, uh, the single most effective tool in community development is female empowerment, uh, more so in, uh, in the rural areas of, of Africa. What we've done with conservation is completely shift the way we looked at our models. Historically, when we'd give a job, uh, we would bring in teams of men from around the country. We bring them in from around the country, not from locally, because we're worried they're going to be corrupted by their, their, their families, their friends, uh, and give away information about where animals might be moving. Also worth noting that the biggest line item in our budget is salaries. So when we're employing men from around the country, we're dispersing a large chunk of our budget around the country, it not going directly back into the local community. Now, with the women, we haven't seen any corruption after 20 months. And what that does is it allows us to shift um, the largest light item in our budget. Instead of being dispersed around the country, it, it goes directly back into the community at household level and into the hands of women. Uh, at face value, we're putting, or on paper, we're putting the same amount into those communities every 34 days as what trophy hunting was doing per annum. So we have an economic alternative to trophy hunting that apparently is only working uh, in the employment of women. Uh, none of them drink. Uh, there's very little sense of entitlement or ego. Uh, They've all used the, their money and their paychecks. I mean, this program is 20 months old and we've already got women that have bought their own land and built their own house, women that have got their families back together. We haven't seen corruption yet. And uh, if there's one thing I've noticed, like when you, when you try and corrupt a man, if he gets caught, you're threatening the paycheck. If you do it to a woman, you're threatening the family and there's a difference. And look, I'm not, we're not a female empowerment organisation. We're a conservation organisation. We just found what I think is a better way to do business. Uh, if the best result for us to achieve our mandate of conservation was 100% men, we'd do that. If it was 100% kangaroos, we'd have kangaroos out there. It just so happens that it seems to be far more effective and efficient um, in having women uh, employed on the front lines. They have a tendency to de-escalate conflict, a combination of them being with the lo from the local communities and uh, just something that we would always be trying to educate um, male soldiers and male police officers about in, in Iraq and in, in the military, how to deal with people on an interpersonal level, how to listen. Uh, I mean, for us, for us blokes, counterinsurgency means countering insurgents. We're looking for a fight to finish. Uh, and women, from what we're observing, they want to have conversations. They want to know what, what the problem is and, and drill down into that problem. So it's, it's, it's far different to biceps and bullets you know there's a lot more to it we're having interpersonal relationships and we don't have a, an anti-poaching unit anymore we have a relationship with the local community where they value what we do because they see us not wanting to have a war but rather a long-term relationship you stated that the akashinga invests at least 72 percent of operating costs directly back into the hands of the local villagers and this number is actually very similar to numbers across the globe in terms of empowering women and how they invest their, use their education yeah. and their financial agency to drive community development. It sounds very simple that you say this was made economic sense and you decided to go with whatever model made sense. Yeah. But I think across the globe, we all know that investing in women invests in the community. Yeah. And yet there's still so many different obstacles that keep from making that happen. 
Um, there's gender lens investing. There's you know lots of proven models that show that diversity, gender diversity, racial diversity, all kinds of yeah. diversity actually promotes greater economic return. Yeah. And yet there's still all these impediments that are in place, potentially because people not like you have not become awakened to their own biases yeah. and their own ego. Yeah, yeah. Look, all, all I can reference there is personal experience. You know, people, and, you know, particularly coming here into the climate at America uh, at the moment, people, you know, you still get people saying, oh, it's, it's, it still comes across as this white male saviour in Africa, and it, it's very much quite the opposite of that. In every aspect, I've become this student. And... Uh, you know, as a person that used to lay in bed awake at night trying to figure out how we can do things better. Um, and I think the women's empowerment movement will appeal to some organisations because they want to be better at what they do. Uh, it'll appeal to some because they want to be equitable. It'll appeal to some because they want to evolve. Some, none of that will appeal to. What will appeal to them is does it make business sense? Am I going to do better as an organisation? I think, you know, it's unfortunate that it takes that to, to pierce through, you know, some of the toughest barriers and that wasn't necessarily our barrier. We wanted to we wanted to find a different way to do things in a struggling industry. But in in terms of you know the guy that used to lie in bed awake at night figuring out how to do things different and you know what's a better way of looking at things. In that respect, the women have, have very much become my savior. You talked about the differences of having female rangers versus male rangers, including their ability to de-escalate and better able to resolve conflict and respond. What are some of the success rates of your trainees over this, these past 20 months? Have there been any rangers who've actually dropped out and decided to not continue? So when we did uh, selection, um, so in 2012, I did a selection for 189 men. Uh, at the end of day, day one, there were three left. With the women, we, did, uh, we started selection uh, with 37. And at the end of uh, 72 hours having put them through the four pillars of misery to be hungry, tired, cold and wet. Only three had dropped off voluntarily uh, and we knew very quickly that we had something tough, very special, something that it was our job to refine and train and prepare. Uh, they had all the characteristics that we needed to, to build into great ranges. We just didn't anticipate all the other benefits that would come with it. How have the men in the community responded to the women's success? Is there jealousy and envy and deliberate sabotage? Look at a broader sense in the community. You know, when they, these women came down and and we sat through and listened to their, their stories, their statements of who they were and where they came from, uh, they were downtrodden um, in these communities. And, you know, I'm ashamed to say as a man they were treated like shit. They weren't victims of circumstance. They were victims of men. And... Uh, they were ridiculed when they came down. They were told to piss off. They were told to go back home. And they did, uh, they did their training uh, and they deployed. Now, 20 months later, uh, not every man in the community may like what they do, but after 98 arrests, they respect it. And uh, this is this amazing social engineering that's been going on uh, in these communities where People are, it's a combination of, of things like shit, we don't want to mess with them. Um, or two, from the young girls that are in these communities, it's like shit, you know, I want to be like them. And not only do I want to be like them, maybe one day I can. 
And when you go back into the schools with these women when they do their talks and seeing, you know, I mean, they get, they get ch- the cars get chased through the communities, uh, young, young boys and girls chasing them and the women are all proud in their uniforms and they've got a great reputation. And they're not, it's not like they're out there kicking doors down and cracking skulls, like they're out there building relationship with the community and that's, yeah, they're like, they're doing one of the toughest, hardest jobs there are to do. And they're doing it well with great success. Uh, the 98 arrests they've made is without a single shot being fired. So, you know, a person who's been involved with law enforcement, conflict resolution, uh, conservation for the better part of two decades now, what really triggers my interest yeah, or curiosity, and I wish I had a crystal ball here, if we can go into a small landlocked country in southern Africa into an industry that's been historically and increasingly hostile towards local communities on a continent that's had a 700% increase in armed conflict in the last decade. If we can go in there and do one thing, if we can swap the men for women and in the process de-escalate all the tension and build relationships between the antagonistic industry and the communities that surround these areas, if we can do that in conservation, what's, what's possible beyond conservation? What's possible beyond Zimbabwe? For the three Akashinga who dropped out, do you know what some of the reasons were? It's a combination of, of uh, things. Some, sometimes, so three dropped out. We actually only accepted uh, 16 uh, of the uh, 34 that got through. And the ones that uh, didn't drop off voluntarily, uh, we actually brought back in and put them through training for the next course. And... Um, I mean, people pull off for, for any number of reasons. Uh, you know, sometimes we have to tap people on the shoulder and say, listen, this isn't going to work out. You learn the most about someone when they don't think they're being watched. And, um, you know, we've got you know, people that need to be able to work in a high-tension, sometimes hostile environment, uh, either alone or as a part of a team. And uh, it's, it's not for everybody, hey. What would you say is the biggest impediment to scaling this model is it the availability of qualified instructors? Is it funding? It's, it's, is, it, it, is it community it's support? Um, so at the moment, we're working in conjunction with our lead ranger program in, in Kenya uh, to train female instructors uh, so they can be part of the scaling process. We have unlimited tracts of land uh, across Africa that have traditionally been used for trophy hunting that we can come in and implement this as an economic al- uh, alternate economic model to trophy hunting Uh, And there's an unlimited number of uh, women warriors uh, in the making uh, or ready to be be deployed across the continent. All they need is is an opportunity. The fate of humanity is inseparable from our willingness to conserve biodiversity. This concept echoes those of ecofeminists who see critical connections between the domination of nature and the exploitation of women. Do you see these connections? And would you call yourself an ecofeminist? (laughs) <laughs> I don't think I'm the uh, some eco-feminist pin-up poster boy, um, whatever, whatever that eco-feminist is. Or eco-feminist ally. Yeah, geez, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I see a lot of uh, capitalist industry that's uh, intent on exploiting nature. I think the, the, the want to build funds is linked to greed and greed is linked to ego. And, uh, you know, it's, it's about wanting to dominate things. It's about wanting to be the big 
the big silverback that's the boss. And uh, like it's, you know, I realised a long time ago the important things in life are not things, they're actions, they're relationships. Uh, they're who you are as a person, not what you have. And, uh, you know, I think in, in, in that respect, you know, I've, I've done a, there's, there's been a handful of times in my life I've been able to make key critical decisions in the morning based on my reflection of who I was as a person and not being happy with that and by the evening have made a significant change that has shifted the trajectory of my life for the, you know, forever. And um, giving this program a shot was, was one of them. But alongside that, the lessons of, of ego and uh, being able to look back and learn from mistakes in the past, I think, is a very important thing. You know, we, nature has billions of years to evolve. We've got a lifetime. So you need to figure out very quickly what are the parts that we need and what are the parts that we don't and cut away the parts that we, we need to get rid of and, and, and grow. And, um, you know, I think I'm fortunate enough to have the self-discipline to be able to do that and also the humility uh, to put my hand up and say, you know what, there's a different way of doing things. You're a vegan. Yeah. What inspired you to become a vegan and how, how has that choice impacted the members of your organization and the local community? I tried to tell a joke about this the other day and I, I, said, to, um, I said to a guy, I said, yeah, well, you know, the only reason I went vegan is so we, um, so we get served first on the aeroplane. He looked at me and said, it doesn't fucking matter in business class, mate. <laughs> and, um, Beside the point, clearly. Yeah. It's, uh, I walked around the bush for, for four years protecting one group of animals and then coming home and exploiting another group. And who I was and what I was doing were heading in different directions. And, um, you know, I didn't want to be that person anymore. I was going flying around the world, getting up on stage and, and asking people to support the rhinos and the elephants and the rangers. And then, you know, I'd go and have a, go and have a steak. And it just ah, wasn't, wasn't me. You know, I think the conservation industry should be driving uh, a, a plant-based movement, a vegan movement. People get involved with conservation because they like the environment. They like uh, animals. Well, they say they do and... and you know, that's, that's right at the centre of the movement uh, is not exploiting them. You know, we, we're talking about 100 billion animals or more a year. And, uh, the, you know, we've got to walk around with weapons out in a hostile area protecting, uh, protecting animals. The easiest way to protect them, don't stick them in your mouth. I think we've got down to a point where, as a man, uh, you know, we say we like, want to protect things and, and, you know, protect the vulnerable and the exploited and, you know, we, 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 you know, it's part of our persona and our makeup to either want to do this or be seen to be doing it. And, um, you know, I think animals are, you know, fall right at the top of the list in terms of the vulnerable and the, and the exploited. And, you know, it got down to a point where I, I didn't want to pay someone to do something I wasn't willing to do myself. Your son was born in 2013. What kind of father are you? And how have you helped him negotiate the tension between having a warrior for a father and adopting traditional notions of male warriorhood that you yourself have, it appears, to have relinquished and reclaimed? Yeah, I've tried to teach him some of the lessons that I've learned. You know, being a warrior isn't... Sometimes being a warrior is, is the, the, the conflict we walk away from, not walk into. Uh, you know, we go for a swim in the pool. The first thing we do is we do a lap around and get all the bees and insects out that are struggling. And, you know, he's grown up around animals and, and in the bush. And uh, he has quite a lot of discipline at school, which I'm, I'm glad because we, get, we can play good cop, bad cop. Uh, he gets the, 
they're very liberal side at home and, uh, you know, we're very, they're very chilled and, and open at home. And then I know he gets, gets the discipline at school. But uh, he's, my wife's from Russia and, uh, you know, we've travelled a lot. Uh, you know, we, we've got a really uh, good, cheap me- methodology to travelling. We stay in backpacker dormitories. Uh, you know, it allows us to see more of the world when we get the chance or if I'm, you know, travelling for work, you know, usually staying in backpackers, not beautiful places like this. But uh, we've dragged him along with us a lot of the way. He's five years old, not even six yet. He's been to 20 countries. Uh, he's always exposed to different cultures and people and and sights and sounds. And, uh, you know, I think the world is the best classroom. Um, in that respect, you know, I'm not, I don't take a deep dive into the textbooks with him, uh, but I take a deep dive into the world. Black feminist scholar, writer, and poet Audre Lorde famously wrote, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And the concept you're familiar with, I'm sure. So what are your thoughts on this? Clearly, you're using the tools. Is your intention to dismantle the house? And what kind of house are you trying to build in its place? So we, I mean, we, as, as I mentioned earlier, an organization that had beaten this militarized drum uh, in conservation for a long time, the better part of a decade. And uh, when we shifted our strategy and essentially what we're doing as an organisation, we looked at rebranding and, you know, do we need to change our name from anti-poaching to, you know, something more holistic? And I thought, no, I said, no, we've been responsible in driving the narrative in this direction. We're going to be responsible for driving it back. You have a tattoo, that says seek and destroy. Jeez, I'm glad you only mentioned that one. I was worried then what you, which one <laughs> do you, you refer to. Do you, no. do you still have it? And how do you interpret its meaning now? I still have it. And um, there you go, across the chest there. Uh, that's the good thing about a tattoo. They're stuck there forever. Well, um, you, you, you can get it <laughs> removed. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I think I'll just keep it as a souvenir for now. Uh, you know, there's one thing, I mean, I can walk into a, into a school and, and give a lecture and not your traditional conservationist with the socks pulled up to knee height and the spectacles taking nothing away from, from those types uh, who are very important to our movement. But I can guarantee you when I walk into a school, um, I've got every young boy's attention uh, because I've done shit in real life that they couldn't fathom doing on a PlayStation. And, uh, you know, it takes all different shapes and sizes to be able to appeal to different different uh, demographics from different angles and I'm just another tool in the box for for justice. So we're at the point of our conversation where I've adapted the Inside the Actor Studio James Lipton questionnaire. First question, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Well, for, I mean, for us as an industry and to bring it back to the the quote you referenced before, you know, set out future as a civilization is intertwined with our willingness to preserve biodiversity. Um, if we don't find more inclusive ways to do what we're doing on the ground, uh, then we're going to lose a lot of the natural world. And the more of the natural world that we lose, the faster we race into, into the sixth mass great, great extinction. Uh, you know, we, it's not the elephants, it's not the rhinos that are endangered, it's actually us. Uh, and this planet's been spinning for 5.3 billion years survived a lot more than, than mankind and will continue to do so. Um, we're just a temporary uh, inhabitant of this planet. Uh, if we do want to hang around, we need to drop the ego, stop the wars, stop the bullshit, stop the arguing. You know, this whole 
mindset of everyone's trying to get rich and, and, and term that as progress, um, bigger market spaces, bigger growth. Like it's, it's bullshit. And I think anyone with a bit of common sense willing to look beyond their own comforts uh, and their own personal gains and their own ego will know that. Uh, so it's about building a more inclusive world. And um, all I can speak about is my own experiences. Uh, and it's definitely worked for us in conservation, in a very tough environment, in a tough country to operate, in a rural area that's a long way from any help. Um, we became not only more inclusive, but you know, handed the reins of responsibility over and uh, very happy with the results, which we're in the process of replicating as far and wide as possible. What gives you hope? I'm very optimistic. Um, I think that we are a species that responds really well when we push far enough into a corner. And I think we're getting close to that corner right now. And it's an exciting time to be around. There's a lot of shit going on, but there's a lot of cool people uh, doing cool things. And I'm constantly coming into contact with more and more people that are making the world a better place. It's about, it's about what they can... It's not about what they can make and take, but what they can give and do. And that's... Um, you know, that lifts you up. It gives you good energy. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop? I think it's internally, uh, as individuals, it's just, you know, look at, look at who we are. And I always like to, you know, it's a, it's a tough thing. It's a fucking tough thing is to, you know, go through these internal audits and, and say, you know, what are the parts I like and what are the parts you don't like? Change is easy. Change can happen in, in as little as a day. It's the internal process that goes on before change that's a struggle for so many people. And we suppress these, you know, sometimes notions or ideas of, of what we know are doing may not be the right thing, but we still keep doing it. So be honest. And I've, I've always had the biggest dramatic changes by being honest with myself and wanting to make changes uh, to be a better person. And that's you know, this isn't like some pep, pep talk or anything. I'm, I mean, I actually, I mostly refer to animals and what we do to animals as a, as a global community. Uh, you know, 100 billion animals a year being killed to feed the meat industry. Uh, you know, that's it's not something I want to be a part of. Um, you know, and I, I suppose, uh, you know, for all the guys out there, uh, you know, it's, it's have a look at the ego on that. You know, maybe maybe it's hard when you're in your, in your late teens and 20s, but... Uh, yeah, there's different ways of doing things, different ways of looking, th- looking at things, and things can often be clouded by, by ego. And I suppose uh, for me personally, that's um, probably been one of my biggest drawbacks over the last you know, two decades, I'd, suppose, I'd say. So outwardly, try and make the world a better place. You know, where Small actions uh, amount to big things when enough people do them, uh, looking after the environment, looking after animals, being more inclusive. Uh, just doing the right thing. I mean, I think we're, common sense is enough of a tool to know what's fucking right and what's wrong. Uh, you do less wrong shit and more right shit, and that's about as fucking simple as it can get. Thank you so much, Damien. I wish you and IAPF the best. Terry, thanks very much, mate. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast 
at gmail.com with your questions. Thank you.